Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody, to the show. In this episode, we're going to be exploring why the pelvic floor isn't always the problem and sometimes how we have to think more broadly. My guest today is Lindsay Vestal. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Madeline, for having me. I am thrilled to be joining you. I am thrilled to dive into this conversation. Um, I figure before we do, maybe we can do like a quick, tell us a little bit about you. Sure. Well, I think a great way to answer that question is to kind of tell you some things that are really important to me and has really kind of uh, helped me along my journal of journey of being and becoming a pelvic floor therapist. And that is, I firmly believe that my clients are my greatest teachers. I think that Kegels are the name of the greatest PR firm for pelvic floor exercises. <laughs> I think that no one knows their body better than you. And that in pelvic floor therapy, the best approach is considering the whole person and not just their physicality. I would concur on all of those, uh, all of those things. Um, so then I, I guess the second question will, will kind of help, you know, unravel. So you're an OT, um, which stands for occupational therapist. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm very curious, um, you know, because the physio and OT program here in Canada, like, it's, you know, they're kind of meshed together and you just kind of take one or the other stream. Um, you know, I'm just really curious how an OT approaches pelvic health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things I do know, just because you bring up that you're from Canada is that in Canada, I know that not all, all OTs can do internal work. Um, in the United States, uh, in many States, OTs can and do. So that is within my scope of practice. And also here in the States, in order to become a pelvic floor therapist, you know, you have to have this, this really geeky drive to want to do this work because in our graduate school foundational work, whether we choose OT or PT, we don't get much exposure, right? It's, it's really, you know, that core curriculum. And then when you have that drive to pursue pelvic floor therapy, you're doing it through continuing education outside of those graduate school years. So OTs and PTs are sitting side by side in those continuing ed classes. Now, I specifically chose OT knowing that I wanted to pursue pelvic health. And my reason for that was that I loved that I was going to get exposure to mental wellness and mental health topics in graduate school. So I knew I would come out being prepared either way, um, but I really was drawn to the, the biopsychosocial aspect of pelvic health, and I knew that in my OT curriculum, I was going to have mental, work field, mental health field works. I was going to have tons of mental health labs and core curriculum, and this is going back to one of those earlier statements that I made that when I treat my clients, I don't just consider their physical symptoms. And to me to adequately and holistically address the pelvic floor. I wanted to have that lens. I knew I would drill down and get those continuing eds side by side with my PT and OT colleagues, but I wanted to first off set that foundation through that principal lens. Great. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, um, as you were saying, you know, treat the person as a, you know, as a whole, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think from PT perspective, you know, I, I'm very acutely aware of the mental aspect of it. And I, and I certainly look through that. I mean, I'm looking through that lens, you know, to be able to identify and educate my clients as to like why addressing this realm is important, but it's not mm -hmm. something that I'm, 
doing per se, like, you know, if there's anxiety or depression or um, different ways of thinking that might be impacting how their pelvic floor is responding. I'm identifying those pieces to be like, hey, you know, this is how it ties together, but I'm not treating it. You know, then I'm referring, you know, referring out. Whereas you're, you're more able in your scope of practice, or I'm assuming maybe this is a question, like in your scope of practice, are you able to address the mental health aspect? Yeah, I mean, we are. I, I, I would be lying if I told you that I didn't refer out because not all mental health you know, scenarios am I equipped to deal with, right? So I have a broad network here in New York City where I have colleagues that that is their, their life's work, right? And so when appropriate, I definitely refer out. But I think it's more of, so as you know, we don't have to be certified in pelvic floor therapy to be in that work, right? You can be, there are certifications out there and for physical therapists, there's even more certifications. But I think what I've decided to do and where my own coursework has really centered itself was how I could complement my physical manual skills, my orthopedic skills with my ability to address things beyond the tissues, right? So the sociological perspectives, uh, social systems, socioeconomics, interpersonal relationships, um, mental health, emotional health, beliefs, right? And the health of the tissues and genetics and all of those things that really go into it. Um, but I think that when we place value on the contextual whole person and their emotional approach, we're really looking at this I guess this complex interplay of all of the factors that make them a multidimensional human being. And this approach accounts for a sensitized nervous system, right? Which is what happens to a lot of our chronic pain clients. Um, and I think an example of what I do is like in, in those first sessions, especially in that first session when I'm establishing the therapeutic relationship, I leave room for psychosocial questioning. You know, it builds that therapeutic relationship and it really demonstrates to the client that we care about them as a whole person, that we're valuing their story. Um, so I'm bringing in like something like the context sensitivity index or the pain catastrophizing scale. Um, and, you know, I think the reason why I was really drawn to this approach was because this is the part of the body that's so interwoven with identity, self-worth, even our sense of control, right? That locus of control, that if we approach it from a purely physical standpoint, we're doing a disservice to our clients. So I try to infuse my sessions with that as much as possible, but I'm, I definitely refer out when, you know, it's out of, out of my expertise. Absolutely. Um... Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we've sort of dived into that, you know, or maybe we'll dive into it a little bit deeper is, you know, when we're talking about a pelvic floor dysfunction, you know, it's not just um, a physical biological process. Um, you know, you mentioned identity, um, but maybe does anything else come to mind, like in terms of impact on our lives? Like how does it, how does having a pelvic floor dysfunction impact our lives aside from um, a biological tissue feeling? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, let's take an example of, so I work a lot with the pre and postnatal community. Um, and an example could be where my client had a traumatic birth, right? So it could be either an unplanned C-section or let's say a fourth degree tear because of a forceps or a vacuum delivery. We know there's going to be obviously physical issues there that we have to deal with, but Combine that with the role change that it is to become, to transition into a mother. Combine that with sleep deprivation. Combine that with, you know, the novelty of now how the household is running, whether you have an older toddler or, you know, your role with your partner. There's so many things to take into account that we're, and I know you and I are going to dive into this a little bit later, but when that nervous system starts to get involved because you're juggling so many things and you have the physical trauma that potentially that type of delivery had, it's a whole lot of quality of life issues. It's a whole lot of like, okay, I tried to have, you know, have intimacy again with my spouse and it really hurt. And it also made me question my own sexuality. It made me question 
Do I still feel sexy? Do I still want to be intimate, right? Like, am I, is my body going to be capable of orgasm again? So there's all those physical questions, but then there's all that role and identity changes and questions that accompany that because we're not just purely beings functioning from a physicality, especially when it comes to those muscles down there, right? It's so much more than that. And those dimensions are sometimes more important to people than others. And so part of our job as a good therapist is to, to read the room, is to read our client and really help them juggle and triage and focus on what's really, really important, you know, for them at that time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and, you know, and I think about, you know, even from the aspect of like giving and receiving pleasure and like, you know, one, and it's like, they might also question like, do I want to even show any intimacy with my partner? Because then they're going to assume I want to engage in further intimacy, but my body's not let. So it it intertwines with this whole thing that then can change also like the relationship aspect, right? Because the partner is like, why are you ignoring me? Or why don't you want to touch me or kiss me or like whatever? And, and so it's such a, you know, it's a com. It is complex in the interplay. It really is, and you've also got a lot of my clients will describe something called being like touched out. You know, where you maybe have been bottle feeding or nursing baby all day. Baby's you know clinging on you, holding you, like touching you. Which don't get me wrong, all of that bonding is incredible. But speaking from my own experience, I've got two kids. You know, sometimes at the end of the day, my cup was really, really full from all of that. I held space for that and I loved that. But when my partner maybe was ready and trying to, you know, connect again with me, it was sort of like, wait a second, like I have been literally hung on all day long, right? And then again, it brings up layers of where is that relationship going to going to go what does the partner think does the partner start to question is this person still interested and attracted to me and again the layers and layers that are there and so again just in this short little example we can really start to see how it's so much more dimensional than just the tissues and you and i haven't even gone there right we haven't even talked about the ways it would rehab the physical body from that fourth degree tear um and we're starting to just kind of dive into all of these other layers and you can see why probably both you and i feel really compelled to this field because it's incredibly interesting and it's intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually drives us to become the best therapist we can because of all those layers and to be really present for our clients because of that. Yeah, I I certainly, you know, uh, you're right. Clients are our best teachers because we have, you know, I have moments where I'm like, man, I don't actually, like, I don't actually know. Um, And, and, you know, being very research based, it's like, but you know what, like the thing I'm going to do and I'll go and I'll hop onto PubMed and I'll start, you know, researching and trying to find the answers. And it's great because it drives my learning. So I'm able to identify, okay, I really, you know, maybe I know a little bit, but not quite enough. So I go out and I start learning or I take a course or I do something right to be um, better capable of, of serving my client base. Right. Cause I mean, pelvic health is, hugely broad in and of itself. Um, you know, so many different conditions, um, you know, you can't know everything, right? So being in that constant learning is, is, is amazing. Um, okay. I want to, so in in, intertwined in this conversation, I want to do a little bit of myth busting. Um, so I guess, (laughs) so I guess the first one is like, are Kegels for everybody? No. (laughs) So um, I would say, you know, in the eight years that I've had my private practice, I can count on two on two hands the amount of times I've really felt like a Kegel was something I that was appropriate and that I gave to a client. And there's a lot of reasons for this. One of the first reasons that come to mind is that a lot of my clients tend to be overactive overactive meaning hypertonic or too much tension, right? And a lot of people think, especially when it comes to the abs and the pelvic floor, we want tone, we want tension, but it really couldn't be further from the truth. 
because a tight muscle at the end of the day is a weak muscle, right? Just like we think of a muscle that's really relaxed and sort of open and, and long, right, is a weak muscle. You're weak either way because you're not capable of full range of motion, right? You're not able to move your body fully through space so that you have got the capacity to support all of its functions. And so if you're in that tight, stuck phase, just adding more tightening, adding more Kegels is not going to help you. In fact, it could harm you, right? You're going to further restrict blood flow. You're going to just keep that muscle in that short, tight range, and it's never going to get a break, right? Think about kind of carrying a purse up at your shoulder all day. And by the end of the day, if it's time to lower that purse back down, it's going to be achy, right? The last thing you want to do is just kind of pump in that, in that short, tight position even more. Uh, another reason is, let's say we do have a client who Kegels are appropriate. You know, they're, they do need to retrain and, and focus on the specificity of what it is to, to really contract the pelvic floor. Well, there are so many more interesting things to do beyond Kegels, things that are functional, things that are part and take into account our everyday movements and experiences that is so much bigger than just the pelvic floor. So the pelvic floor is just, I know as you know, is just one quarter of the whole inner core system, right? It's one quarter of what we talk about when we refer to the, the three main functions of the pelvic floor, which are elimination, intimacy, and support right? We've got three other muscle groups that are companions to the pelvic floor. And so if we're just looking at one quarter of those, it's again, doing a disservice to our clients because we're not taking into account that whole picture. So those are two reasons that are a little bit on opposite sides of the spectrum, why I so convincingly said no to the answer to your question, um, because I just think there's, there's so much more we can do. Absolutely. And you know, I also think in some cases having some tensioning and having, you know, having some tensioning in the pelvic floor is, is appropriate, right? We're, we're not saying that tension is a bad thing. Sure. Um, what we're saying is the pelvic floor needs to be able to move through mm -hmm. its full range of motion and it needs to be coordinated and it needs to have a flow to to its movement. Um, I guess my next question is like, is there, you know, what, what is the optimal way the pelvic floor should function? You know, when you think about the pelvic floor and the way it moves, like how do you think is the most optimal activation or relaxation or how do you sort of train the pelvic floor? It's a really nuanced question. I'm going to do my best to, to answer that because that could be an entire three-hour conversation between you and I. Um, and, you know, my, my learning and my, my approach to this is ever-changing because I am a lifelong learner. I, like you, I really tried to keep up with the research and um, clinical skills. But I would say, in a said in the most clear, concise way that I can, it is a muscle that needs to be able to be responsive. It needs to and should respond to demands put in front of it. So let's say we're, so, you know, I live in New York City, walking down the street, I step off a curb, I have a pelvic floor in an optimal situation that can sort of, you know, respond to that sudden change that maybe an unexpected step off the curb would do, that perturbation from stepping down, my pelvic floor should be able to sort of bounce and then lift back up, right? So one that's sort of responsive to the unexpected demands that we may place on it. One that is capable of supporting us, but also letting go. So we talked about that concept of full range of motion, but let's, let's give a real example for that. So simple one, going to the bathroom. It's time to urinate or it's time to have a bowel movement. And I've been in a meeting all day and I haven't been able to go even though I felt the urge. Well, my pelvic floor in an optimal situation, right, should be able, my sphincter should be able to tighten so that it doesn't come out when it's not the right time. And then I'm able to calmly get up from my meeting, walk to the other side of the building, have no leaking. I'm able to sit down on the toilet 
and my muscles are able to completely relax to the point where I can eliminate fully, right? So there's not an extreme amount of effort associated with starting the urine stream or getting the bowel movement out. So those are two sort of opposite ends of the spectrum, the ability to tighten and the ability to let go. And in a nutshell, that's what our pelvic floor should be able to do in both spontaneous and planned situations. I love that example. I, I couldn't have possibly been more concise to, to, think, of, to think about it. Um, so thank you for that. Um, okay, let's, um, let's bust myth number two. Um, is the pelvic floor always the problem? No. <laughs> so I want to kind of rephrase that question a little bit. Perfect. Meaning, I, I, think, I think this may be what you're asking. And if you're not, Madeline, please let me know. But I think what you're asking is, let's say I come to you because I'm leaking urine. Or let's say I'm coming to you because I'm peeing every 15 minutes. Or let's say I'm coming to you because I'm having painful intimacy is the pelvic floor always the problem? And the answer is no. If that's the, is that the question you're That asking? is the question, yes, okay, yes. Great. So we would, then many times, and I definitely have throughout my career, immediately gone there, right? I'm a trained pelvic floor therapist. I understand this part of the body. This person is having a dysfunction with that part of the body. Let's, let's do an internal exam. Let's immediately go there. Let's fix the problem. Let's get the muscles working again. And I think that that more whole person approach that kind of takes into account other factors such as stress, such as lack of sleep, such as role change, such as the state of the nervous system, such as the state that there may be a pandemic going on. Um, all of these factors, maybe I'm going through a divorce, maybe I just got fired from my job, that... I think that when we take a step back and kind of recognize that there may be some upregulation of the nervous system or what we call central sensitization of the nervous system, maybe going right to that pelvic floor and doing an internal exam and addressing that part of the body may not be the most optimal and helpful approach to that client. Another way that I like to think about this is back in 2016, I did the ISM training with Diane Lee in Canada. And it was amazing because that's also I really got to see that the pelvic floor isn't the driver of pelvic floor dysfunction. You know, um, I was working on a client with, with Diane Lee and, you know, she actually adjusted the cranium bones and I was doing an internal exam at the time and we were doing ultrasound simultaneously. And I, in my hands and on the ultrasound saw the pelvic floor tone change by me doing nothing, but by Diane adjusting some bones in the cranium. And that's where I was like, wait a second. So you're trying to tell me that it's not always about the pelvic floor. So, you know, my journey has continued these past four years working through all of these variables. And I think it's a responsibility of a good pelvic floor therapist to step back and recognize when an internal exam isn't appropriate and the pelvic floor isn't always the driving problem, even if their problem appears to be in the pelvic floor itself. And that was going to be my myth buster number three is like, do we always have to do internal work for somebody to get better? Absolutely not. And in fact, sometimes it can make them worse, right? So there's so many things we want to look for, like what I call um, nervous system tells or um, there's another word, but it's, it's eluding me right now where, you know, maybe we start to see some goosebumps on their skin or maybe they start rocking back and forth or they get sweaty, you know, where we're getting these, these signs and symptoms, symbols that, okay, they're not feeling safe in their body. Or, you know, maybe we've all been in a situation where they verbally consented. They said, yeah, let, let's do the internal exam. And then the moment we start putting hands on them, we can see them maybe disassociate or they'll grimace or, you know, they won't, they will avoid eye contact. Again, these are all symptoms and signs that this is not the direction you want to go. This is going to just further traumatize or insult the nervous system to a way that we're not going to get those results. So kind of being tapped into those things, I think is, is really perceptive and really important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, sometimes when I'm working, um, you know, like with vaginismus, um, you know, I, I do, I, I try to explain, I have a model and I'm like, look, I'm going to, you know, start with like 
breath and abdominal wall. And then I'll like move to, you know, thigh, you know, just putting pressure or touch, you know. Um, and if I'm seeing that they're already tensing or yeah. they're like lifting their head off the pillow, I, that's, that's a telltale sign. Like, like this is, this is, it's just not gonna, it's just not gonna be a successful, um, assessment, I guess, um, yeah. both for them and for me, because they're, you know, even if I got near their pelvic floor region, yeah, it, it, it's just not going to allow for anything to happen. Right. And then, you know, I don't want them to feel like they didn't do a good job at relax, you know, it didn't yeah. do enough for the assess, you know, like I just, I want to avoid that as much as possible. So if I, yeah. I start looking for those cues, um, and I do a lot of educating that the pelvic floor is not the first place I'm going, right? Yeah. Uh, I want to I wanna test and see, you know, do, like you said, do they feel safe in their body? Do they feel safe, you know, around other body parts? Um, and then, yeah. you know, go basically, you know, from, from there. But, you know, when you're, when you're a newer therapist and you're just starting out and you haven't worked with this population, you, you know, you just may not pick up on those cues. Right. Um, so that's why I think, you know, having discussions like this, um, can be helpful for, you know, newer therapists starting out, like, you know, think, think more broadly because, you know, you go to physio school, you get the skills, you get the orthopedics and you're just like, all right, let's just like, let's just dive in there. Right. Um, we don't get very much of the biopsychosocial discussion. Um, or at least we didn't in our program get that like typical focus of like, it's not always in the tissue. So that's stuff yeah. you have to learn afterwards. Right. So little tips for our young therapists getting into, getting into the field, you know, look for those non nonverbal cues um, yeah. that may show that person's not quite ready for that type of exam um, and switch, switch gears. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is like, I have a lot of clients who will come and see us because we can do internal work. So, you know, it's pretty common for, you know, a, a typical client to go through six or seven years of being misdiagnosed, right? Going through different doctors, going through a battery of tests, you know, UTIs, infection, you know, all those kind of things. So they've been through a lot, right? And a lot of times they're coming to see us because we may be that last missing piece. We may be yeah. at that, that mystery that can unravel things. And so to the new therapist listening or anyone who this might resonate with, you know, even if they're coming to you and they're explicit, like, oh, you know, I I'm eager to find out what's going on with my pelvic floor and, you know, we're going to do internal today, right? And even if that's there and they're really driven by that, even if you, even though you hear that cognitively, if you're still having a disconnect and you're still feeling like it's not the right time, it is absolutely important for you to speak up and mention that, right? And say, we can get to that, you know, potentially the next session or the one after that. But there's so many things that I want to do with you leading up to that to help you feel safer in your body, to help you understand some things around pain science, to, you know, all of the things that we can do because they may be really thinking that that's that thing, but you almost can feel how wound up and you know, kind of preoccupied they are about that. Like, we're going to do that today. And we're going to solve my problem. Right. And if you're still thinking that they're not quite there yet, it's important to speak up about that as well and have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause likely it'll lead to some disappointment, right? Because we may not find anything in the pelvic floor, right? Cause again, the pelvic floor may not always be the driver. It may just be the victim yeah. of something greater going on. Um, but you're right. Like when they're sort of coming in and they're like, you know, you're going to help me, you're going to fix me. This is, this is, yeah. you know, um, it also, you know, as a therapist, I feel like I'm under a lot of pressure, yeah. <laughs> too, right? Like, yeah. I'm like, Oh my God, like if I don't figure this out. Right. And so it's also recognizing within ourselves when we're getting ourselves wound up, That's um, right. because that, that will also impact our decision making as well. So I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And the other thing is, is like, you know, the functional pelvis has really been, its reputation has really grown on the fact that we are big into client education. We're really big and empowering. We don't want to see our clients forever. We really want to turn the work over to them 
really giving them that sense of empowerment and control. And, you know, there are some clients that that's not the right match for. And so we do a really good screening process of letting people know right off the bat before they even book with us. And I think also reputation over the years and word of mouth, we're starting, you know, we're just getting clients that that's kind of matches what they want. And for any of the therapists listening, like get to know the other therapists in your community. Hopefully there are others because I think that that's helpful because you can lean on each other. And so it got to the point where even like my PT counterparts who are very, very orthopedic, very manual based, very talented. If there is more, you know, let's say our, one case comes to mind where it was a case of pretty severe fecal incontinence and they really sort of needed my mental health background, you know, they would refer over to me and vice versa. And so kind of get to know the strengths of your community and help clients triage them to where their best fit is. Because if I have a client who just wants to lay on a table and be quote unquote fixed, it's not, they're going to walk out of my session being very disappointed um, yeah. because that's going to be a portion of it, but it's, it's definitely not our main philosophy. So I think that's also important is to really sort of step up and own the type of therapist that you are and to communicate that clearly to your client base, because at the end of the day, everyone's going to be disappointed if, if, if it's not clear. Yeah. Oh, that's, and that's, that's a really great, um, great piece of advice is, is figuring out, you know, what it is you like to treat and how you like to, how you like to treat it. Um, yeah. and then being, you know, upfront about, you know, this is, this is, this is my approach. Um, and again, it's not, um, it's not a specific training that you get. And when you're new, you sort of are unsure about yeah. what it is you like to treat and how you like to treat. And Absolutely. so, you know, explore and see what, you know, see what kind of gets you excited and then see, you know, what doesn't mix well with you. Um, you don't, and this is, this is the really hard part is you don't have to be everything to everyone. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. And it's taking, it's taken me years and like business coaches and all yes. sorts of other things, you know, cause I, it, you know, you're afraid to niche down. You're yeah. afraid to own your thing. Cause it's like, yeah. feel like you're saying no yeah. to people. Um, yeah. but that's where you're saying, I'm not the best person for this, but my colleague yeah. over here is, this is what yes. they do and they love. Um, yes. And I think that's going to garner more respect than being like, I'm going to try. And, you know, it doesn't sort of work out. So, so I, I, I love that piece of advice. And, you know, I wish somebody had, you know, given that to me early in my, my career to, to help kind of, you know, figure out what it is I like to do. So I, I certainly encourage young therapists to like explore. Um, but then, you know, really try to figure out what it is that, um, you resonate with and then just go for it. <laughs> okay. I, I couldn't agree with you more. That was so well said. And I guess the other thing I want to bring up uh, that make, that makes me think about is maybe for the intermediate therapists, you know, so the therapists who maybe have been doing it for a little while and kind of found their jam and they're feeling pretty confident with it. Well, you know what? Be open to the fact that that next population or that next specialty might also change um, and be open to that because something else might excite you. So before I worked with a pre and postnatal population, I was working with older adults and then I started my family and I really got into helping parents and helping, you know, new mothers. And, and so that while I continue to work with older adults, I would say 85% of our practice is now pre and postnatal. And that really jazzed me up because I went through it and I had my own experience. So also be open to things pivoting. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Um, as we go through our life transitions, right. You know, we, we, we have access to sort of knowledge that others might not have. And, you know, who knows, as I go and transition into, you know, perimenopause and menopause, I'm going to be dealing with those problems myself. And if I find solutions for me, I may be really compelled to share those solutions with others in that transition. Right. So I, I think that's an amazing uh, thing to, to mention. Okay. Coming back to, uh, coming back to our pelvic floor is not always the problem. I want to talk a little bit about the nervous system. Um, mm -hmm. because, you know, we definitely have a clientele base that, you know, wants us to fix them, uh, or wants that internal work. Um, 
and we clearly recognize that they have this other stuff going on. I guess I'm mm-hmm. curious as to like, how do you sort of begin to educate your client on the role of the nervous system as it relates yeah. to the pelvic floor? It's a great question. You know, I don't get super geeky. Um, I try to keep it really clean, really basic. Um, I'll, I, I do train other occupational therapists to get into this work and I save my geeky hat, which I thoroughly enjoy wearing when I work with my students. But when I work with my clients, you know, I really try to keep things really clean. And so I basically talk to them about how the nervous system really has a direct influence on their pelvic floor function. And when we're in times of chronic stress, you know, our nervous system can be really upregulated. And so we, how do we know that's happening? Well, you know, maybe we feel that we're sort of clenching muscles, right? So the jaw is really common or our shoulders lifting, you know, we're kind of guarding. And we really have this general high level of tension throughout our body. And affects the way we breathe, right? And they've already heard me talk about the pelvic floor having such an impact or the breath having such an impact on pelvic floor. So it really makes sense to them. Well, if I'm, you know, breathing with my chest or breathing with my upper body, I'm really kind of getting out of not, not number one, I'm getting out of that parasympathetic or that calm state, but I'm also disconnecting from my pelvic floor because we talk about how the breath, the diaphragm and the pelvic floor are companions, right? The Diaphragm is the conductor of the inner core. And when that disconnect happens, we really kind of get a heightened state of, of arousal in a way that we're very upregulated. And so we spend a lot of time feeling that and talking about that. And, you know, when we get into that heightened state of reactivity, it can really lower the threshold for what is uncomfortable, right? So we talk about finding their triggers, finding things that cause that nervous system to go there because they spend a lot of time either disengaging from that or being preoccupied with that. And so either case, bringing to the awareness, sort of the volitional awareness of, oh, when I hear that siren pass behind my office, I can all of a sudden feel I'm sucking my my muscles in and I'm clenching my jaw. And it's like, okay, wait a second. I actually have control over that. Now I know when I'm doing that and I can, when my boss walks in my office, you know, I'm crossing my legs and I'm, you know, I'm reorganizing my body. And so I'm, I'm helping them kind of gain a locus of control again in terms of seeing that they can advocate for themselves just by observing their reactions to things that they can start to predict. And when those things become less, when they become part of a pattern and they're less unpredictable, they start to feel like it's under their control and there's something they can do about it. So then we spend time exploring, well, what can you do about it? Like what, what in that moment can you do to kind of reclaim that sense and to remind your body you're actually safe? Maybe you don't like that person or maybe that siren you worried about who that might be impacting, but right now you're okay. Right. So it's kind of diving into um, where they're at, what their experience has been and really helping them be present in the sensation in a way that can, um, help them feel like there's something they can do about what can often feel extremely out of control and overwhelming. Absolutely. Uh, And and that's a great, uh, a great way to talk about, you know, triggers is that people may not be aware that they're reacting to things. um, And the body may automatically do it because it's been doing it for who knows how long you've been sort of reactive in that way. Um, so first step is obviously exploring what those things might be, um, which I happen to really like the explain pain, um, like sim sims and dims. Um, cause I will do that with my clients to help them think about like what irritates you in your day to day life. Like, where do you hate going? What do you hate doing? Because Mm -hmm. your body is going to respond to that. And in that exercise, I think it helps people. Um, become a little bit more clear about things that may actually be causing them stress. Cause oftentimes, mm-hmm. you know, I'll have clients come in and they're like, and blah, 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 and blah, 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 right. Like they're talking so fast and then they're like, yeah. but I'm, but I'm not stressed. Like, you know, this is just day-to-day stuff. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I find that exercise can be helpful in, in helping them identify it. So it's being able to identify that your body's reactive 
and then say, oh, that just happened. Okay, I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to let it go. Right. Yeah. So, so that's the sense of control. Cause sometimes your body's just going to automatically react to something, but the sense yeah. of control comes in, but you don't have to stay there. Yes, exactly. Um, exactly. So we talked about, you know, the nervous system. Um, and I guess, you know, so we have like sympathetic and parasympathetic that we've sort of talked about, right. Our fight or flight, our rest, digest repair system, what, mm-hmm. what is, where does the vagus nerve? I'm, I'm kind of curious about, you know, cause I, certainly there's a lot of talk, you know, about the vagus nerve and I, and I guess I want to learn a little bit more and how it may tie into pelvic floor dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm still learning a lot myself, so I'll kind of let you in on my process and where I'm at, but there's certainly so much to learn. Um, so, you know, Polyvagal theory is a roadmap for understanding the nervous system, you know, and that obviously everything we've talked about today sounds extremely helpful. Having a roadmap for, you know, uncovering some of these feelings that we're having. And as you said, the autonomic nervous system is made up of two, right? Two, two branches, the parasympathetic, which is our rest and digest. And when it's stimulated, it increases motility of the gut, it relaxes the heart and the breath, um, produces serotonin production, uh, stimulates the urge to go have a bowel movement, right? And then we have our sympathetic, which is more of that fight or flight. And the 10th cranial nerve is the vagus nerve, and it's part of that autonomic nervous system, okay? And the vagus nerve is the main input of parasympathetic activity into our bodies. And the pathway exits behind the mandible, goes down the sternocleidomastoid and the scalenes by the clavicle, and it dives into the thoracic cavity and kind of goes to the visceral organs at that point. So vagus literally means wandering, like a vagabond, okay? So Mm. vagus, vagabond. And it's kind of like this inner referee that breaks up the fight or flight response. That term, trust your gut, comes from the vagus nerve because it sends emotional signals from the gut to the brain, right? Gives us insight into how we find safety, how we find connections with others, or how we shut down and how we kind of go into fight and flee responses. So you can see why it would have some really important implications um, for the pelvic floor. Um, Because the biggest thing about polyvagal is the sense of of community and the sense of socially engaged. And when we're having a pelvic floor issue, we're anything but socially engaged, right? So I'm thinking of a client who has urinary frequency or urinary urgency who is no longer leaving the house because they're extremely scared that they're not going to find a bathroom, that they're going to leak and have to change clothes, right? So now they've socially withdrawn, their quality of life has really gone downhill, and they've gone into more of a depressive behavior, right? So this is, this is a client where kind of understanding the nervous system and those reactions is, is really important. Thank you for... for um you know, explaining the, you know, the pathway and sort of, you know, what it does, right? So, um, so you know, I guess the strength of that nerve, the way that we use that nerve um, will impact the type of signals. I mean, there's an autonomic part, right? Like I can't consciously <laughs> say to my vagus nerve, I want you to do this. Um, but can we impact the vagus nerve and its functionality through some conscious effort. And yeah. if we can, you know, in the context of, you know, exercise and pelvic health, what can we do to help stimulate that nerve mm-hmm. to be more functional? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. Um, so there, there are, there are a lot of, and there's a lot of people out there that are, um, coming up with really tangible resources and things that you can do. So, couple things that come to mind right off the bat is if anyone follows Jill Miller, Yoga Tune Up, um, she does a lot with the vagus nerve. So things like, you know, neck massage, right? So, so basically, um, if we stimulate the vagus nerve, it actually calms us 
and it increases our ability to socially engage. And when we socially engage, we're kind of our best self. And I don't, and I, you know, I'm even speaking to the introverts because social engagement doesn't necessarily mean I'm out there having the life of the party. It's this idea that I'm a part of something bigger, even if it means I'm an introvert. It's this idea that I'm, a, I'm getting up and going. I'm, I'm, I've got a willingness. I've got a zest for life. And I think that a lot of times when you kind of go into more of a depressive behavior, you're withdrawing from even things that you normally would participate in. So you want to stimulate this nerve and there's really simple ways to do that. So kind of massaging sternal cladal mastoid and mandible, we talked about that as being kind of the path for it, right? So even kind of up at the cervical level. So there's things we can do above the diaphragm and there's things we can do below the diaphragm and both are really important. And that's because of the two different um, passages of the ventral and dorsal branches of the vagus nerve. So one part of the nerve goes towards the front, one part goes to the back. And, um, you know, we can do some massaging along sternoclinomastoid. We can do um, neck massage. One of, my, one of my more favorite things is like actually singing and humming. Even if you're not a singer or a hummer, and I'm not, my husband doesn't even, <laughs> he would vouch for me on this. But, you know, kind of um, doing things like um, and, ah, uh, and letting sort of your mandible drop and letting the back of your throat stretch, um, saying, ooh, and letting your lips create kind of like a spear in front of your teeth and doing this in a very vibratory way really, really affects the, the vagus nerve. So pe people like Peter Levine and those somatic, um, what's the word? Uh, it'll come to me. Somatic experiencing does a lot with this vibration, these singing, um, and then working on the branch that goes below the diaphragm, abdominal work. So abdominal massage, visceral manipulation, all of these things can have really tremendous impacts on calming the, the nervous system. Um, and there's a basic exercise that, um, forgive me, I, the book is eluding me. I sent you the name of it um, earlier and between your nice brains and maybe even the show notes, we can reference it. But I was going to kind of talk us through... Um, that author's basic exercise, which is something I give with my clients before we start our work together, because what it basically does is it increases blood flow to the brainstem where the five cranial nerves are. And when that happens, you actually have a parasympathetic response of either yawning, sighing. Uh, some clients say they just feel their heart rate really slow down and it's so basic and it's so easy. And I start my sessions this way often and I even do it before I go to bed at night. So I was just gonna really quickly walk us through this. It's called the basic exercise. And we basically interlace our hands and we put them behind the back of our neck. And ideally you're laying down. You don't have to be, but lying down is nice. And the main reason for lying down and for cradling your neck is because you're going to move your eyes to a, to the right. And when you do that, you don't want your head to turn. So you're lying down and you kind of have your head anchored so that your head stays still. And I simply want you to turn your eyes to the right and you're just going to keep them there and you're going to breathe and you're going to stay there for a good 30 seconds to a minute. And in that time, you're going to spontaneously feel either a yawn, a um, swallow, uh, again, like kind of just feel like a change in your heart rate. And you're just going to keep your eyes to the right until that happens. Then once it's happened, you're just going to bring your eyes to the center. And now you're going to bring your eyes to the left. And the same thing is going to happen. So again, this is sort of opening up blood flow to the brainstem. It's also helping cervical alignment. So this is really good for those people whose neck have that text neck, that computer neck that's really forward because it kind of helps C1, C2 get back into alignment a little bit. And that's like a really nice basic way of helping to stimulate that vagus nerve. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And I did find the book. Uh, it's called Accessing Great. the Healing Power of the Vagus Nerve. Thank you. And who's the, who's the author again on that one? Um, I think I have to go into my Amazon to, uh, I think it's Stanley Rosenberg. Um, and then the foreword is by Stephen Porges, who is the person who basically created the polyvagal theory. Yes. Yes. Uh, Stanley Rosenberg. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, that's a really good one. Anyone listening, I, I highly recommend that one as a great place to start to begin to understand the polyvagal theory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so thank you for sharing that. So, and it's, it's simple things. Um, 
yeah, and, really simple things. And I just, you know, as you're talking about the humming, all I could think about is, you know, I wonder if there was some ancient wisdom in the creation of the um, you know, yeah, um, yeah. Mm, right? Like if the, you know, because you're stimulating the throat and the front of the neck and the vocal cords and, and all of that creating vibration, which is going to then, you know, start to stimulate the receptors. And that's how we, you know, that's how we talk to our nervous system is by stimulating our senses and stimulating our receptors through, you know, through touch or movement or breath work. Um, that those are amazing ways that you can actually tap into a system that you can't consciously tell it what to do, but we do have some sense of control. Um, it's just not, you know, it's not the same as like, I'm going to flex my bicep and I have like this conscious control over that with this, you need to, you need to do something that then begins to stimulate that system in order to affect a change. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and the goal is to really have our clients kind of become like, I guess you could say like active operators of their own body, of their own system, right? Become aware that like there, there are ways to downregulate and ways to um, feel empowered by not reacting, right? So isn't that like the whole premise of meditation, right? That like you don't always have to, to react, right? You don't always, you can, you can sit back and you can think, right? So I'm, I'm big into um, Alexander Technique. And the Alexander Technique uh, infamously always says, like, we have time. We have time. We have time to not fall into old habits. We have time to change our alignment, right? We have time to not just be reactive to emotional, physical, sound, stimuli, right? There's, there's time to process and to reorganize. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's wonderful and great. Um, okay. I want to, um, change gears away from the nervous system and back to, back to the pelvic floor. And I want to, I want to talk about integration into everyday life. I think you, you mentioned this, that there's, you know, when you do give Kegels, that there's just so many more things that you can do with it. Um, you know, like if you're need to work on your pelvic floor, whether it's relaxing it or strengthening it, like, is it something that you can just do here and there and like get better or, you know, or does it need to be integrated and how do you do that? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest issues that I have with Kegels other than the several that we brought up today is that people think that, um, number one, there's no room for the relaxation or what we call like the reverse Kegel. It's all about the tightening. But number two, that we just need to do it whenever we can do it. And we should do it mindlessly. So we should do it when we're at the traffic light. We should do it when we're waiting in line. We should do it like all these times when we don't have select, when we have divided attention. And we're never going to rehab a muscle that we're not allowing brain and body to communicate. And that's what those activities are suggesting. We just throw them in. We just add them in as kind of a backdrop while we're multitasking. And again, we're not going to see any repatterning if we approach rehab in that way. And so um, I like this idea of integration in everyday life for a lot of reasons. Number one, it's far more interesting. Number two, it's really functional. I remember when I started off as a therapist, I saw a real disconnect between, let's say, the exercises we gave a client in the clinic and then when they came home, right? So they spent all this time in the clinic, maybe having beautiful posture or, you know, doing whatever three sets of 10 we were giving them in the most perfect way they could. And then they got home and they picked up their kid and their shoulders were rounded again. And they, you know, didn't, you know, round it, whatever. They threw away all of the alignment principles that they spent so much time talking about. They weren't able to transition into everyday life. So my philosophy is to start there and to be there um, and to really use those so we have the good fortune of doing house calls. Um, so we go into people's homes in New York City and we are able to use their environment with their props. So with my pre and postnatal population, we're at the changing table, right? We're at the kitchen sink. We're walking in their neighborhood, pushing the stroller. We're using these as opportunities to check in with their body and to say, what can I be doing to 
connect you and heal my pelvic floor in this moment, right? Picking up a thousand and one Lego pieces off the floor, right? That's a repetitive activity that most of us as parents can relate to. And it's like, well, let's do it in a way that strengthens us, that heals us, that we can feel empowered by. So um, that's, that's where I spend my time and, and the clients, my clients tend to appreciate it because it's not this mundane, boring thing they're trying to squeeze in. And if they don't squeeze in, they feel guilty. I think that if we use everyday life and not wait for that 45 minutes, when we squeeze in a gym exercise, it can be so much more empowering and we don't feel guilty at the end of the day because we integrated in what we were already doing. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's um, a really you know, good approach because, you know, if, for example, we're dealing with leaking with activity, well, what's the best way to rehab? Well, rehab it with the activity, you know, rehab with the activity. I mean, there might be a little bit of groundwork to set up, um, obviously, you know, but then like train the activity that gives you the problem. That's right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much for, for mentioning that because, you know, sometimes, you know, like I'll chat with my clients and it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, kind of doing it here and there, yeah, right, is sort of a disconnect versus yeah. like you could be doing it with all sorts of things at home. Um, yeah. It's just, totally. it's, it's, it's being mindfully present to allow that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I know you are, you have a couple of like, DIY is it do no DIY yeah that's it um you know courses for individuals and for professionals and I was hoping you could chat a little bit about that yeah yeah so twice a year I do offer courses for OTs who want to get into this world this extremely rewarding world of pelvic floor therapy um it's twice a year because I offer a group mentorship component um so it's it's pretty amazing. I've been doing this for two and a half years now. And um, it's a great way and a really affordable way to figure out if this is a direction you want to go. And then for the public, I have a course called Kegels That Work, which is a DIY course where you, I give clients information on how to perform their own pelvic floor assessment. I give them both internal and external options so they can kind of see, well, do I have too much tone? Am I overactive? Am I underactive? And then I kind of help them triage through, well, if they are, what's the next best steps? And of course, I include a whole section on everyday life and how if you are overactive, you know, how to, how to actually fold that into activities. And if you're underactive, again, how to, how to mesh those worlds between finding out where your pelvic floor is and then how do we use everyday activities as a chance to strengthen um, and connect to it. So I'm, I'm really proud uh, of that course because it, it, really puts the power into people's hands to be their own detective and to figure out what's going on. Yeah, that's amazing and wonderful. If people are looking to find more information, where where do they go? Where can people find you, follow you? Yeah. So I have a weekly newsletter called The Humpty Hustle. It comes out on Wednesdays. That's a great way to kind of um, stay current with things that are inspiring me. So I include podcasts. I featured your podcast before, um, you know, research articles. I always have an exercise or a stretch in there from me. You know, it's just three little bullets of things that are really inspirational that you can scan and be inspired by. Um, so that's, you can, you can sign up for that on my website, which is functionalpelvis.com. I'm also really prolific on Instagram. So you can follow me there. Amazing. And we'll put all the, the links uh, in the show notes for people to very easily access um, those, uh, those resources. Um, thank you. Lindsay, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come chat with us about this. Um, it's been amazing. And I've even learned a couple things, you know, regarding the vagus nerve that I didn't know. So I'm actually quite excited to learn more about it. So thank you so oh, much. Oh, thank you. I've learned so much from all of your resources and your podcast. I mean, you're just doing such service for us all who are lifelong learners and want to continue to, to be the best therapist and human being we can. So thank you for all that you do. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for mentioning that. And, and yeah, I mean, we're, I'm learning from you. I'm learning from my guests and it's, it's always nice to, um, 
just hear how other people think about things because you never know where that like spark is going to come. And sometimes people like explain things so well and concisely that I'm like, man, it takes me like half an hour just to say that. You know what I mean? Um, So I think that's, you know, as therapists, I think it's great listening to other therapists um, because it it helps us grow and expand. Um, I agree. So thank you again. And of course, I always want to thank our listeners and people who are following us. And if you're not, and this is the first time you're listening, like subscribe to the podcast because every week is a new topic, um, new conversation. And, um, you know, if you've enjoyed listening, share it with people who you think may benefit from listening. On that note, we will see you guys again next week. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.